This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This month, we've been exploring the theme of substance abuse and how it affects teens and families. My guest tonight is Joe Morrissey, and we'll be talking about talking to your kids about alcohol. Joe is the Assistant Project Director for 21 Reasons, which is a local substance abuse prevention coalition right here in Portland. Prior to this work, she spent seven years as the Business and Communications Coordinator for the Cumberland County District Attorney's Office. She has two daughters, ages 12 and 9, and she used to own Java Joe's right here on Exchange Street. Welcome to Safe Space, Joe. Wow, thank you for having me. Yeah, I want to start right out by asking you, how did you decide to go from being the business and communication director for the district attorney's office to working for a coalition about substance abuse prevention? Well, that's a really good question, Anne. Well, the job came across my radar, and I thought long and hard about having spent many years in the district attorney's office watching the irreversible tragedy of what happens to youth and adults when they, most of it starts in a bottle. And when the opportunity came to address sort of the source of those tragedies in doing prevention work, it's sort of the analogy, I think um, Jen Hodgson has brought that up in our office before, of pulling the victims out of a stream for so long, you begin to realize who's throwing them in to start with. And so when that opportunity came to find out who was checking them in the river, I jumped. I see. So you, uh, after years of watching bad outcomes, you started to think, okay, I have to start working with prevention. Yes. Yeah. And is there a particular story that of something like that that really inspired you to focus on alcohol? Well, you know, the story is kind of an ironic one. Um, one of the first cases as the communications coordinator with the district attorney's office was also the same case that inspired the my parent organization to start up Communities Mobilizing for Change on Alcohol, which is the predecessor to 21 Reasons. And that case was, uh, many listeners will remember, the tragedy of Tukey's Bridge, where there were um, four youth from the Portland High who were out drinking. And um, the car was, the driver was speeding back home towards Falmouth over Tukey's Bridge at a high rate of speed and lost control of the car. And it flipped off the bridge upside down and landing where there is today currently a memorial. And um, that particular tragedy really started to turn a lot of wheels in the community to ask the question, where did they get the alcohol and how is it that youth have such easy access to alcohol and what are the community norms around that that can allow that type of environment to to foster? Mm-hmm. So I see. And what I understand is that 21 Reasons in many ways actually focuses on parents and not on kids. Parents are definitely one of our major focuses. We work with parents in the community. We also work with law enforcement in the community, and we work with businesses in the community. But our work with parents is is the more emotionally tugging and um, emotionally challenging work because every parent out there really just wants to do what is right and what is best for their own child. And we walk that fine line between um, 
bringing the latest in research evaluation to parents who also are firmly set in their beliefs in what they're currently maybe doing is the right thing and trying to convince parents things like it's not okay to throw a party in your basement and throw take away the car keys because indeed convincing them that um, only one-third of underage drinking deaths happen from auto crashes and the other two-thirds are from poisonings and asphyxiations and drownings and falls is a is I didn't know that yeah it's a sort of a it's a a, believe it or not a challenging message to try and get across Uh uh-huh so people really associate the risk of underage drinking with motor vehicle accidents which has really been true for me so the other two-thirds of teenage deaths due to drinking have to do with these other things you mentioned yes Huh. And so when you say it's a hard message to get across, is that because people don't want to believe it or? Well, because again, parents really want to, excuse me, really want to do what's best for their child. And if they feel that they can have them at home in a safe environment, um, that is what's going to keep them safe. And that by, there's the fear of if you are hard on your child and draw a strong line of yes and no, then you will then start driving them away and creating a wedge when indeed the belief and the research shows that most likely what will happen is your youth will respect the boundaries that you set for them, realizing they know that you have their best interest in heart Hmm. and they feel protected knowing that there are rules and that if you set clear rules and explain the rules and explain the consequences and then follow through on those, it creates an order for their world. It creates a sense of security for them and a sense of trust. Okay, that sounds powerful. So I want to come back before we even get to the sort of what we need to do, because I'm interested in ending with that. I want to talk more about what makes it hard for parents to talk to their kids about alcohol. And, you know, I, I am aware as a parent myself, and I know you're a parent, of fears that I might have as a parent about, um, you know, I guess a fear that if I take such a strong stand against something, I actually will make my kid want to do it more. It's like saying to a boy, you know, we don't have guns in the house. And then all of a sudden the boy Mm -hmm. really, really gets fascinated with guns. (laughs) You know, there's some way that I think I have a, a, a worry not based on experience yet around alcohol, because my kids are younger than yours, but or my son is, but um, that a strong stance actually evokes the, the urge to resist or the urge to rebel. And tell me about that. Right. The sort of desired apple syndrome. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Well, I, 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 would, I would urge you and your listeners to maybe think back to your own teenage years. Yeah. And... Um, for those of you who may have had parents who did draw a strong line on one thing or another, think back of what it would have felt like to you had you crossed that line. What would that have felt like? Would you have been intimidated or have felt like you had lost your parents' respect or were there consequences that you thought twice of before trying it out underneath, from, underneath your parents' watchful eye? 
It's interesting how, in a way, I might discount my experience just because I think I was a goody-goody and I followed all the rules and I wasn't nearly as rebellious as I perhaps wish I had been as a teenager. Right. But, you know, I, I think that there is a natural set of rebelliousness in adolescent years. But on the other hand, I think children and teenagers really have a strong sense of respect for their parents, really strong. And it doesn't start in those teenage years. It starts in those developmental years when they're younger. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, um, I, my children who may be listening, hello girls, um, they will probably hopefully laugh years later when, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Whenever today they ask for a special treat, um, they they earn it by telling me that they promise to be good teenagers. Uh-huh. And whether this actually you're bribing them already. I'm Joe. bribing them already, <laughs> but it started many years ago, and I can tell your listeners maybe in ten years from now whether that technique works, and we can maybe make it a, a community kernel. But yeah, um, right. <laughs> but the idea of um, blatantly wanting to do just the opposite of what your parents have urged you not to do. Um, I really challenge that um, mm. position and and have folks look back at what they would have also done when they were teenagers and whether it really did make them want to do just the opposite. It's really interesting. So maybe that's a myth that just has a lot of power. Well, and I think that there's that fear of parenting, that parents at that age when children are starting to become more rebellious and parents themselves might not be ready to let go, revert and and freak out maybe a little bit and say, oh, well, maybe I am being too strong. I'm not ready to let go of them. And so I'm going to acquiesce or be their friend as opposed to what your kid really needs at that moment is maybe an excuse to tell their friends I can't, my mother will kill me. Right, that that would actually help the child take a stand for what they want if they know they have you have your, their back. Exactly. Very interesting. You know, I think, too, your idea about the parental fear of driving a wedge it speaks to what you're saying. I think so many parents have a fear that in adolescence they're going to lose their bond with their child, that they have this really, you know, up until the kid is about 11 or 12, they have this very intimate very dear, loving, close relationship. And then all of a sudden, they don't know who's there. They're surly. They're sullen. They won't answer them. They won't talk anymore. And and actually, parents feel so much loss, great loss right. and helplessness. Right. And so I'm guessing that there's just this fear of, I don't want to do anything to push my child further away. Right. Yeah. Right. And I would encourage parents who feel that way to perhaps talk to parents of maybe early 20s, who have children in their early 20s, and, and chat with them to see how that worked for them. And and mm. they can get a sense that there's light at the end of that tunnel, that this is a phase, it's a period of life, and that you don't necessarily have to push them away by laying down the ground rules. Instead, what you may actually be doing is giving them what they absolutely need, which is a sense of security in a world in which suddenly it's become very confusing to them. My guest today is Joe Morrissey. We're talking about how to talk to your kids about alcohol. This is Dr. Ann at Safe Space on WMPG. So it's, I really appreciate what, what I'm learning from you. It's, in some ways, you're saying have the courage to stand by what you really believe. You're not going to lose your kids. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that feels very important. I know another question, or another reason why parents worry about talking to their kids about alcohol is they're afraid their kids will turn the tables and ask them. So, Mom, Dad, <laughs> when you were my age, did you drink? Did you smoke pot? Did you smoke cigarettes? Right, right. And uh, parents really don't know how to answer that question. And should I tell them? And should I? Would I be lying? Or, you know, I wonder right. what's your feeling about well, that. I I would really like to empower parents to let them know that they don't have to lie to their child, but on the other hand, they have every right not to divulge everything. It is absolutely developmentally, um, there are times and places for telling certain things. And perhaps when you're talking to your youth about this, you want to keep in mind that whatever it is that you do decide to share with them, whatever it is that comes out of your mouth might not have half the impression or strength and message as what it is they're seeing with their own two eyes. What do you mean? Well, they'll be looking at you as a high-functioning adult who's the authority figure in the room. And no matter what comes out of your mouth, the impression for them will be, but you're fine now. I see. So there were never, so their view will be there weren't really any consequences. That, that is a, a possibility. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying lie. I'm not saying divert because you don't want to, you don't want to lose their trust. Right. And, and if you divert, if you thing. don't, if you divert from a question, you communicate that it's shameful and we can't talk about it. Exactly. Right. And that's not the message we want to be giving. No, no, no. This conversation must be done very artfully. Okay. You definitely don't want to lie. You don't want to divulge everything. But you probably want to tell them a bit about the bad things that did happen, if there were some things that bad happened. Or you might want to remind them that in the last 25 years, we know so much more now about what the effects of alcohol are on an adolescent's developing brain that they didn't know when you were younger. And that had your parents known what the, some of those long-range consequences of even just simply not living up to your full potential, which is just one minor consequence of underage drinking, um, that your parents probably would have put the hammer down as well. Mm -hmm. Although I think for many people, it, it may not have been that their parents didn't put the hammer down. It may have been that they found effective ways to sneak it. You know, I, I think often kids drink even in the context of their parents laying clear rules. Right. Well, and, and again, you know, um, the... 18 drinking age was raised to 21 the year I turned 17. Uh -huh. So <laughs> things were a little different um, all the way around when we were uh, yes. younger. Yes, I grew up where it was in Canada, where it was age 18. Right. Yeah, very different. Very different. On that note, we're going to take a musical break for a few for 30 seconds, and I'm going to return to my guest, Joe Morrissey, to talk more about talking to your kids. About Looking forward alcohol. to it. Did it, did 
PG. This is Dr. Ann returning with my guest, Joe Morrissey, talking, to, talking about, talking to your children about alcohol. And the first part of the show has really been about parents' fears, about talking to your kids, and about taking a, giving a, communicating a strong message. I want to shift now a little bit to what 21 Reasons has to offer in terms of what are things that parents can do that are effective. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, let's start there. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the um, one of the things that we try and instill with parents when we work with them is to get them to adopt the five parental monitoring skills that OSA has come up with. Um, OSA being the office office of substance abuse, main office of substance abuse. Okay. Um, and they have a fabulous website at uh, mainparents.net that actually has a lot of great resources, as does the Partnership for Drug Free America. But the five parental monitoring tips are primarily geared to addressing, preventing your youth from accessing alcohol. But um, where those tips have been adopted, they also address many other things by their very practice, like um, lacking of access to marijuana or prescription drugs. Okay, so what are they? All right, I was waiting for you to ask. Well, the five tips... um, and I'll run through them really quickly. And if you, if there's one that um, in particular strikes your fancy, we can talk about it more in depth. But we have That's the good. be up and be ready so that when they come home, you can check in with them. You can also have the check in often tip, um, making sure that no matter where they are, check in with them and see where they are. Make sure that they are where they say they were going to be. Have them perhaps use a landline instead of the cell phone to prove um, and, you know, with many of these tips, you don't want to spring on them when they're in their high school years. Um, these are parental monitoring tips that I try and encourage parents to begin adopting in the grammar school, middle school years so that it becomes habit instead of a punitive aspect. You don't want your junior in high school suddenly to think that you just simply don't trust them, period. Um, another tip is to uh, lay down the rules and make sure you go over them. So sort of reinforce and enforce the rules. Make sure that they're clear of what it is you expect from them and what the consequences are for breaking those rules so that everyone's on the same playing field. They understand what game, what, what the, the game rules are. In other words, so your kid's going out to a party and they're 16 mm-hmm. and you say to them, I want you to have a great time and I want you to not be drinking. Correct. And if I find out that you have been drinking, I will X or right. you will X. Right, right. And, yeah. you know, maybe even um, have a, a parental contract and an understanding when they get to do, be that at that developmental stage where they could possibly find themselves at a party and suddenly there's drinking going on and they know that it's against your covenants and rules in your house. Make it a safe space for them to call home and say, look, things aren't going the way I expected. Can you come get me? Mm-hmm. And and make that 
respect them for that. And if it is a situation in which they've actually imbibed, you know, and but they've still called home, maybe make it part of the family contract that I will come and get you, but I'm not going to dress you down the whole car ride home. We'll talk right. about it in a respectful manner later. Yep. Because otherwise, so there's because otherwise there's a disincentive to call. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You want to make it easy for them to find safety. Yeah. Um, and another uh, parental monitoring tip is to always network. And again, this is easier to do when your children are younger. You know, when you're dropping them off for a play date, you get out of the car, you introduce yourself to the other parents. It gets a little more awkward when your children get a little older. Um, but don't stop. You know, go to their soccer games or go to their sporting events or go to their plays or go to their yearbook meetings and get to know the other parents who they're, they know. And, the, you know, this does a lot of things. It creates a community where you can talk with other parents about what's really happening over on Saturday nights. Um, you don't want to be exchanging phone numbers for the first time over a tragedy. You want mm. to be sharing um, your thoughts and your concerns and your house rules with other parents and what your expectations are throughout their developmental years. Um, very you know, it's interesting for me as a parent of a six-year-old, I still go to the play dates with my child. Yes. So I'm not there yet. So imagining my child going to play dates where I haven't met the parents yet or haven't been to the house. Right. It's a world that I haven't ventured into. Yes. And you, you just kind of get creative about how to put your hand out and meet people. I mean, unfortunately, um, part of being parenting is not being shy. Right. So for those who are challenged that way, socially challenged, um, that can be hard. Um, and one of the last uh, of the five parental monitoring tips is to the very basic tip, especially when they get over this older, this is more developmentally appropriate, is to just simply limit the access to alcohol, period. And how, what do you mean by that? Do you mean lock the liquor cabinet? Do you mean don't Absolutely. have alcohol in your house? What do you mean? Well, definitely locking the liquor cabinet is a great um, limiting. You know, count your alcohol, count the beers that are in the refrigerator, and let your child know that you know what your stock is in the house. So it dis, it's a disincentive for them to try and sneak it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think about parents drinking wine with dinner in front of their kids? What does that, what message does that communicate? Well, there is the responsible um, imbibing of alcohol. It's not illegal. It's, it's certainly an alcoholic beverage that um, is enjoyed by millions around the world. We're talking about underage drinking and limiting access for that. What parents can do when they're having their glass of wine around the dinner table is just role model responsible drinking mm-hmm. and drinking in a responsible manner. Um, one of the role modeling um, tips that we try to get out there is, you know, certainly try not to brag about um, the good old days of drinking in college or when you come home from work and it's been a hard day. You, you know, you probably don't want to be saying, oh, my God, it's been such a hard day. I really need a drink. Right. You know, be careful of what it is you're trying to say in front of your kids because they're watching and yeah. they really do look up to you on what it is they want to become when they're an adult. So the next question that I have is, um, you know, when I was growing up, my parents had the idea that I, my, my mother was from Europe, so the idea was that, you know, kids yeah. start drinking at a much younger age there. That's a norm. Right. So when I was 14, all of my siblings would be given about a centimeter of wine with dinner 
you know, maybe once a week. Oftentimes we didn't accept it because we thought it tasted horrible. Right. But their view was, we don't want you to wait till you're 18 and you're at some party, keg party and you've not had alcohol ever. And then you just go completely out of control. Right. Our view is we want to teach you respect for it. We want to teach you to be comfortable with it. And we want to model moderation for you starting young and right. not... and. I'm curious, well, what's your perspective you know, on that? They can certainly model moderation by drinking in moderation in front of you. I don't yeah. think that they, with all due respect, yeah. need to actually give a child alcohol in order to show them what moderate drinking is. Uh-huh. Um, the research shows, and, and with adolescent brain development, um, there's lots of studies um, I can share with you. I could probably rattle off the last five minutes. but Yeah, um, do. I'm interested because well, I really... Tell me. Yes. Well, um, there have been um, two national side-by-side studies given 10 years apart that show the exact same results. And those results are asking adults what at what age they started drinking and then what their current drinking habits are. And for those adults that report having alcohol use disorders, um, they report having started drinking younger. So yes. the younger that you begin your initiation into alcohol, the more likely you are to become an adult alcoholic or an adult with alcohol drinking disorders. And the reason for that is what we now know about the brain development is until about the age of uh, 10 or 11, your brain is creating these massive amounts of synapses. And then once the puberty hormones start, the brain stops making so many synapses, but instead starts making these super highways out of the synapses that are already there. And those pathways that they solidify are largely shaped by life's experiences and what it is you expose your body to. So if you expose your body to an instrument, a foreign language, math, Amelia, (laughs) you will then become very good at those things as an adult. But if you expose that same adolescent to alcohol, whether they're drinking alcohol in order to um, relieve stress or for the social lubricant, they then start to lean on that. And that's how they learn to overcome stress or overcome the social lubricants or whether there's a chemical makeup in the brain that also teaches them um, the yearning for alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, it's fascinating for me because certainly we know, you know, studies of the brain with what we call neuroplasticity. The more right. you do something, the easier it becomes to do it. It's like practicing how to, you know, right. shoot a basketball. Right. Um, in my work, working with substance abuse, where I would ask people regularly, mm-hmm. when was your first drink? The people with the problems, yeah, they would say 10 11, 12. But interestingly enough, they were not being, they weren't, those 10 year olds were not talking about one centimeter of wine with dinner. You know, they were talking about sneaking their dad's beer and getting drunk at age 11, unsupervised. It does feel like that's quite different. I'm not, I'm not advocating for giving, I want to be very clear. I am not advocating on the radio (laughs) that any parent give their underage child a drink. Um, But I am trying to, but there is a, a cultural norm. I mean, there's something about the um, acceptance of alcohol in our society, in in everything we do. In, in yeah. some of the adult alcoholics that I have spoken with or worked with, um, they report 
the shock of coming out of rehab, for instance, and trying and realizing to avoid how the it's very, everywhere. it's everywhere, the very thing that they are certainly, you know, trying desperately to avoid. And yet that's the culture in which we're raising our children. Right. So we're going to have to stop in one minute. But the last question I want to ask is then, how do you help as a parent? You're, you're a kid who turns 21, transition from being a complete non-drinker to a responsible drinker, you know, when it's such an arbitrary thing, like how do you, what's the role of a parent then? Well, the role of the parent would have been for the previous 21 years is to role model responsible behavior yeah, and let those, let their children become mature adults to realize what's right, what's wrong, and to have the self-knowledge and self-confidence in order to proceed in a responsible manner. They have to start sometime. Let's yeah. give them as long as possible so that they don't become alcoholics or, or end up with alcohol use disorders. Right. So the idea is that the older you are, the more mature you are, the better able to make good judgment, good decisions about it. Correct. So delay. Delay. On that note, we're going to have to stop. Joe Morrissey, thank you so much. Why don't you give again the website address for people who want to learn more about this? Yes, absolutely. There are some great parental monitoring tips with the um, main Office of Substance Abuse at mainparents.net. And there's also the Partnership for Drug-Free America has wonderful resources on how to talk with your children. And if someone wants to reach you directly or your office, how can they find you? Well, we can be found on the web at 21reasons.org, or you can call me tomorrow at 773-7737. Love to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. My thanks to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. If you'd like to contact me to get more information or to suggest a new topic for the show, email me at drannw mpg at gmail.com that's dr dot a-n-n-e w-m-p-g at gmail.com next wednesday at 7 30 i'll be starting a new series on homophobia in maine i'll be interviewing the reverend mike johnson about the new equality in marriage law coming up next is money talks with allison This program is brought to you with listener donations and an underwriting grant from the Sunrise Guide, a locally a locally owned annual guide to living green in southern Maine. The Sunrise Guide includes tips and resources along with more than 200 coupons for earth-friendly products and services. More information is at thesunriseguide.com or you can call 221-3450.